So, I'd like to um, discuss some of the complexities involved in the whole arena of moral values and that kind of consideration of ethics, and also some values and areas that we don't often even consider when we consider ethics and values that are often not brought to light or, or talked about. But before getting onto that, let's rummage around just a little bit more in our consideration of the ontology of all of this and uh, partly recap what we've already said, probably a little bit new there, before moving on. And just reflecting just now a little bit, you know, I it may be obvious at this point, i say it as well, I don't feel like I have any answers to all these questions that arise in this area. There's certainly not any easy answers. And at this point, I'm not sure even how much I'm adding that's kind of original to what's already out there. But as I said, I do want to perhaps shed some light or open up certain areas that are often less considered when we think about ethics or we approach our our, life, our moral life. And perhaps someone else or others will uh, pick up some of these threads, some of this material, and uh, take it forward, develop it at some point. Okay, so just to, again, start with a, a little bit of a recap about the ontology so mostly with the heritage of modernity and postmodernity, many people, perhaps I don't know, most people in the contemporary culture have either a conscious position or, if you like, an aspect of their position vis-à-vis uh, -vis ethics is that moral values are subjective. They are contingent, they depend on and arise out of culture, place, and the conditions of history here or there. That would be the dominant view, or at least a significant factor, a significant strand of most people's views nowadays. I do wonder, though, sometimes if one has a long-standing Dharma influence of practice, practitioner and heard lots of teachings, for instance, where moral values and ethics is not seen as culturally contingent so much. What happens in the psyche there, between the sort of pull of the contemporary view of modernity towards regarding them as subjective and contingent, and the sort of Dharma view regarding them as, in a way, absolute or laws of the cosmos and of the psyche? And what happens to a Dharma practitioner in the contemporary world, inwardly, in regard to all this. In contrast to that contemporary view, Nikolai Hartmann asserts and posits that moral values are objective. He certainly admits, as we said, that historically, in different places, at different times, in different cultures, and also different persons, the range of values of the, what he calls the moral firmament, the whole edifice or structure of the totality of values, that, that range is limited in the consciousness, in the moral consciousness of a certain culture or a certain person at any time. And that is limited and contingent, dependent on the culture. But just because our torch beam shines only on a small portion of that firmament, at any time. It doesn't actually mean that the firmament itself is subjective. And so that's his position, and it, to me it's a very interesting position. What he offers as proof for him, the fact of guilt, the fact of an intuitive sense of ethics, to me I'm not sure that they constitute enough evidence to be called proof, strictly speaking. But that's his, that's his position, and it's certainly tenable and, and valid and, in 
interesting and powerful. He also, interestingly, a slightly, slightly different point, he also interestingly talks about not just the objectivity of values, but the objectivity of the hierarchy of values. Okay, so here's the collection of values, and he says these are objective, but also their absolute scale, their arrangement on a hierarchy, he would regard as objective. Let me read a passage where he says that. Um, he says, this much, Thus much can be said for certain. The rudiments of an absolute scale of values, so this hierarchy of values, which is a higher value, which is a lower value, and where they stand on, on this sort of ladder. The rudiments of an absolute scale of values are contained in all moral feeling for values. It is clear, even to a very primitive moral sense, that honourableness takes precedence over outward advantage. Yes, that honourableness is thus the higher value than outward advantage. That doing one's duty goes before pleasure. So certainly outward advantage and pleasure have value, but honourableness and doing one's duty have higher. The same holds good as a whole of the more obvious gradations in the scale, for instance, in the general preference for moral worth before goods values. In other words, getting rich is not as high on the scale as acting morally and choosing morally. In any case, he continues, so far as a feeling for the values themselves reaches, a sense of their relative importance usually accompanies it. In other words, intuitively, we, we actually have this feeling of the relative importance of values. The closer the values are in grade, the closer they are in that hierarchy, the less clearly can we discern the order of their preference. Thus, the inner situation approaches a conflict of values which actually exists objectively only where values of equal rank stand against each other. So we'll come back to that last point. And he talks about, in his words, an astonishing infallibility, a strength of conviction in, in the sense of relative grades, or intuitive sense of where things stand on this hierarchy, is enough to justify the old belief in a moral organ, someone called Hempster House coined the phrase, an order of the heart, as from Pascal, or a logic of the heart, as Scheler said. So these philosophers talking about the organ, the instrument of moral sense in a human being. It is a unique kind of order with its own laws which cannot be proved intellectually, but which equally scorns every intellectual argument brought against it. This is well enough known in the phenomenon of conscience as in the unerring imputation of guilt, in the sense of responsibility and in the consciousness of guilt, but no less in the infallibility of the prohibitive shrinking from a deed beforehand. Certainly this sense of grade varies, he continues, both in scope and in discrimination, exactly as does the sense of each value. There is also such a thing as blindness to the rank of value, just there is blindness to material things. And there is perhaps even a perverted or a quite dead valuational sense. But this is no objection to the certainty and real a priority of the sense of rank, where and insofar it is, as it, it is present. Exactly the same is true of all genuine a priority. So again, for example, mathematical truths, a priori truths. Its universal validity is independent of how many people have the insight. And even if only one or no one actually has it, the fact remains that whoever is capable of it necessarily has it just as it is in itself and not otherwise. So, there's the objective nature, according to Hartman, the objective truth, the objective independent existence of the values and also the hierarchy of values. Again, I think what he offers as uh, what he calls proof, to me is very suggestive, does seem to suggest that there's that objective existence of the hierarchy, but strictly speaking, I guess from a logical point of view, it doesn't really constitute proof in, in my mind. The, the fact of guilt, of conscience, the sense of responsibility and the consciousness of guilt, the shrinking from doing what we think is bad beforehand. Important sort of evidence, but strictly speaking, I'd say, falls a little short of proof.
if we want to lean more, as uh, many contemporary people do, and especially in the wake of sort of postmodern philosophy, want to lean more on the idea of the cultural contingency and relativity of values, we're also in a little bit of a problem because where do we find someone or some group of people who don't have culture? So what we witness, what we what we come across are cultures. We come across nothing else. We come across human ethical behavior or unethical behavior in the context of human cultures. So as Alistair McIntyre points out, man, or human being, qua animal means as as animal, considered as animal. Man prior to or without any particular culture is a myth. And that's a myth in, in the in the poor sense of the word, in the worst sense of the word. So sometimes people do have this myth of kind of wanting to reduce, <coughs> I've met certain people want to almost uh, reduce their lens of human being to the animality of humanity as if that were more basic, more true, more real than any cultural accretions or distortions or influences. But that's a myth in the sense it's got this life given to it from a proposition, but there's no there's no evidence for it. It's not possible to actually encounter such a being. Alistair McIntyre continues, Our biological nature certainly places constraints on all cultural possibility. But man who has nothing but a biological nature is a creature of whom we know nothing. It is only man with practical intelligence and that, as we have seen, is intelligence informed by virtues. In this case, he's talking about virtues embedded in culture. It's part of how he defines virtues. Is intelligence informed by virtues whom we actively meet in history. So the proof of the other side that moral values are, are only culturally conditioned, that proof is also an impossible it's beyond our reach because we never encounter anyone like that or any any group like that. But we also said, and we spoke briefly about mathematics as a kind of possibly similar set of ontological structures, if you like, that can exist in ideal form, in the form of ideas, in the realm of ideas. And that moral values might have a similar kind of existence. Not exactly the same, but similar. So we spoke about the mathematical number pi, an irrational number that can never really precisely instantiate exactly in the world of physical actuality. And the number i, the imaginary square root of a negative one or other negative numbers, it's an imaginary, abstract, mathematical construct. It manifests, as does pi, indirectly and very cogently in the way that it shapes and forms <coughs> manifest physical actuality. But we don't actually encounter that directly. Or in a whole host of other mathematical laws, equations, entities, and also in the quantum Schrodinger's wave function, fluid, abstract mathematical entity existing in abstract, multi-dimensional mathematical space that bears a, a very close relationship with what actually manifests at a certain uh, time and in a certain space. But it itself, we can't even really get our heads around our, our usual discursive heads around what it actually is and where it might exist and what exactly is its ontological reality. And so we said moral values may have a similar ideal existence and an existence in the realm of ideal forms of ideas. Slightly different but may exist there. And so Again, it's not conclusive, but the fact of the demand, if you like, for some kind of ontological position or bracketing or categorization of things like mathematical laws, mathematical entities, 
the fact there's some need by most people who reflect on these things there's some need for some sense of giving them some kind of different different reality different reality status than the usual things of, of physical actuality the fact that that exists in relation to mathematics opens the door the possibility for legitimacy in other realms too so there's, there's similarities in, in the area of logical rules, but there's also possibly similarities in the realm of things like moral values as ideal realities. Differences, which we've talked about briefly, but that again doesn't constitute a proof, but constitutes something that opens a window of possibility, a window of possible legitimization. And in regard to soul-making practice, you know, we have this principle carved out through hard work and careful consideration and meditative exploration that we can move flexibly, fluidly, agilely and carefully with a lot of attunement and practical fruit, practical implication, practical significance. We can move between different logoi, different conceptions. So in this case, we can move between different ontological frameworks or conceptions vis-à-vis the realm of moral values. And so at times, we can lean into entertaining that logos, that conception of moral values having their own kind of real existence in the realm of ideal forms, ideal essences, the realm, the sphere of ideas. And we can entertain that, put that conception in the soul, in the consciousness, for a period of time, for a period of practice, or whatever, and see what happens. See what happens in our meditation, in our outlook on life, in our outlook on different situations, in our sense of our existence and our journey. Certainly there is the meditative possibility, we talked about briefly, of meditating on these ideal forms, meditating on a certain moral value, so to speak, at the level of an ideal form, in, in the realm of ideas. So when we do that, and that meditation, uh, and that possibility of meditation, we're not talking about meditating on a, a rational definition. We define kindness as this, or we define justice as this, or whatever, and I'm meditating on that rational definition, or mulling it over. That might have its place. And logically arriving at a, a rational definition can be helpful for some people. We're really talking about something that goes beyond discursive thought. That process of pondering logically and rationally and coming up with something that's a rational definition may have a place. It can never capture, uh, for various reasons, some of which are more I'll, I'll go into more as we go on, but it can never really capture the idea in its fullness, in its sort of transcendent essence. Yet it might have its place. Nor is that kind of meditation, that meditation on an idea, really meditation on an instance, on a particular instance of justice that we may have read about, or we may remember, or we may imagine. Again, and maybe more so even here than with rational uh, definitions or pondering, an instance, the memory of an instance, the imagination of an instance, the, the hearing or reading about an instance of, let's say, justice or kindness or whatever it is, faithfulness, loyalty, truthfulness, whatever value, the instance could serve as an entry point to this more transcendent realms, transcendent of the in- instance, of the particulars of an instance this or that particular instance of beauty, this or that instantiation of justice. So an instance could, in the meditation, be a starting point and an entry point, a springboard, if you like, to to this other level of the essence of the ideational. But I also want to say, I don't subscribe to the view that the ideational imaginal is, as I've mentioned this before, or the realm of ideas is a better 
kind of meditation or level of meditation necessarily than meditation on an instance or an image. So we don't have to subscribe to the hierarchy that existed in the metaphysics and the cosmology of uh, ancient times and medieval times between the world of physical actuality, the magical actuality, and then the higher level of ideational existences, the realm of ideas. We could at times move into that, or some people may subscribe to that. Of course, everyone's free to do that. But there's no a priori reason why we have to subscribe to that hierarchy of idea over image. Both can be available as ways in, as important resonances and meditations with regard to our ethical life, but also just with regard to our soul. Both may be helpful in building our moral being, as Hartman says it, and in soul-making. There's also one other reflection, again, one we've touched on before, but there's also the possible idea, the possible logos and concept, that the very shifting of cultural emphases and perspectives and the shift of the scope, the range of each culture's beam of light, torchlight, within the the whole range of the values in the value ferment, that that very shifting could be seen as, could be conceived as part of the world soul soul making. It's a movement of soul that's much bigger than an individual and that, that moves through history, in history, with history is history. And in a way, as it shifts, this cu- these cultural emphases and perspectives and their scopes, their individual scopes, what gets expressed is what can't be expressed or made manifest all at once. This is something we'll come back to later. It is actually impossible, just as in some of those mathematical Analogies. It's impossible to capture, or rather to manifest and to express at the same time, all at once, the whole range of values. It's impossible to live them out. It's impossible to even um, perhaps see them all and hold them all in consciousness at once, perhaps. We'll come back to that later. But that's an idea that then takes in the notion of cultural relativity and contingency, but casts it in a different light, gives it a different basis, even in conception. And in this kind of old debate between subjectivity and objectivity, does the mind create the values or are they objective and the mind just receives them, witnesses them, notices them? Again, there is another level that's possible to us in in our sense of it, in our conception of it, which has a non-separation between soul and world, between soul and its objects, its beloved objects, between soul, in this case, moral values. They are not really separate. They participate in each other, and that's part of the sacredness and mystery, so that the whole dichotomy between subject and object has some mysterious, more mysterious kind of um, transcendence or synthesis, coincidence of the elements of that dichotomy at another level. And we can, again, we can get a taste of that in our practice, in our sense of soul-making, and we can entertain it as an idea. Also in regard to ontology and this whole question of what is real, what is true, we need to consider the whole question of free will versus determinism. 
And then this is obviously a really important question. Without a notion of free will, the whole subject of morality just goes away. It, it, it has nothing to stand on. So we can't talk about morality and what's ethical and what isn't if everything is determined. If everything is determined, either physically just, well, we do this because we're programmed hardwired that way from, from biological evolution, or because we trace it's just the way neurons work, or whatever, physiological impulses, or uh, social determinism. These and this and this was the conditions in the society, in the culture, in the upbringing, whatever, and therefore this act ensued. And there's no room then for anything but that determinism. If that's the case, and there's no space for, for free will... Uh, the notion of free will, then the whole contemplation of something called morality just has nothing to stand on. There's no basis for it. So this is really quite interesting. And again, we have this question, which is real, which is true? So we can have, again, Hartman, we've touched on a couple of times at different points, this whole area about guilt. And we can obviously have two views regarding guilt. So we've explained how Hartman is, in a way, a, a sort of champion of guilt. He won't give it up as something important to our moral growth, our moral being, to our soul. That it's wrapped up with our sense of personhood and autonomy. And it's a corollary of free will. If I have free will and I chose something morally questionable, then I am culpable, and I have guilt with that, in relation to that. So that's one view, as Hartman outlines it, and we've uh, mentioned it a couple of times. The other leaning here would be just to, to open things up and see more in terms of conditions. And there's a, a, an assuaging, a, a, a quietening, a dissolving of guilt then, a dissolving of suffering where there has been this tight grip of, of guilt and the kind of self-contraction and self-obsession that often goes with that and the contraction and spinning only around a view of the past kind of stuck in a whirlpool of vortex, uh, looking at the past, looking at the self, it's all very contracted. Nothing can kind of, just like in a whirlpool, it's almost like nothing can come out of that whirlpool at its worst. And so I've uh, talked and written about um, working with that kind of contraction of guilt um, in uh, one of the chapters in Seeing Freeze and um, Ending Blame and other places in talks, etc. Really, really skillful, really, really help, helpful to be able to open out and see in terms of conditions and less in terms of self. But actually both are important. And there's a way of opening the guilt out when it's just got um, uh, too problematic. It's actually not helpful at all. It's not doing what Hartman thinks um, it can, or what Hartman claims, I think, helpfully, uh, that it can. It's not helpful. It's unhealthy guilt. It's doing nothing helpful in terms of our orientation and our attitude towards future behavior. It's completely wrapped up in, in looking at the past. Um, it's not serving our uh, moving forward in a a richer, deeper, more ethically upright, more sensitive, more careful and attuned uh, orientation uh, to the future and future choices and our future taking responsibility. So actually both are possible. There is a way that we can, um, we need to think in terms of self. The Buddhists go on and on about no self, but actually self is important. And even if you read carefully the Buddha's passages, there's lots of um, uh, teachings that have to do with self, that rest on self-view. And there's the teachings of Hiri and Ottapa and shame uh, uh, in terms of what others th think of us and in terms of our conscience, etc. Hiri and Ottapa in Pali. And they're, they're teachings around self and plenty of other teachings that have to do with self. So we need, uh, we can't, uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater and lose a sense of responsibility 
And for that, it's the self that needs to be responsible. So do I buy into that as an ultimate truth? No, it's a certain truth that I can move into and out of, and sometimes it's really helpful. And at the same time, or at different times, I can uh, see less in terms of self, or in terms of not-self, or just in terms of conditions. So there's the kind of balancing of them, but there's also, um, I think even more skillfully and uh, helpfully, is the, is the uh, teaching that we can move flexibly between these two views. Sometimes I can look, and it's important to look, in terms of self. Talking with someone the other day, you know, I was trying. So many people practicing Buddha Dharma or other uh, related kinds of traditions in Advaita, and I think the whole um, uh, movement is towards dissolving the self, dissolving the self sense, and liberation is living in this dissolved self sense. And I would say, no, that's only a relative truth. Self is so thoroughly empty that we can. We can pick it up again, knowing that it's empty, and we can put it down. We can be liberated to such an extent uh, that self, and the arising of self, is not a problem. We don't have to be stuck in some kind of no-self view, or trying to attain some kind of state of ongoing state of no-self. We're so free from self. We're so free in relationship to self that it can come up. It can arise. And we can put it down. Both. So, extending that into into its uh, moral implications, also with regard to uh, responsibility uh, and free will and the determination by conditions in the environment, in the history, in the upbringing, biological, uh, etc., Only, even just reflect for a moment, to only to take only one of those positions, there is always free will, and there's always responsibility, or uh, everything is determined. To take only one of those, you can feel how brittle it is. And just a little bit of reflection, it just to me it just sounds silly. Either of those options just sounds silly, really silly. Silly in that they don't really reflect truth, and silly in terms of what it then what it then um, implies in terms of how we live and how we consider ourselves and how we uh, judge and discern morally and and, and uh, consider other people. So the flexibility of view again, and as always, why why uh, why this view now? Why that perspective at a different time? As I said, it might be sometimes that I'm so caught up in a tight uh, whirlpool and vortex that's not constructive at all. It's just suffering, and I need to ease that suffering. I need to loosen something. So I adopt a certain view um, of, for instance, reflecting on conditions, etc. And I can do that very carefully, as I've outlined elsewhere. Develop skill that way. Or, at other times, I'm actually, it, it, I, I can feel, painful as it is, that I want to keep my uh, sense of guilt um, and responsibility here. I want to look in terms of self. Because, as Hartman says, that's part of building my moral being. And it, it might serve soul-making. So, as always, the question is, why? What's the intention? What am I uh, trying to serve? or support, or open, when I adopt one possible way of looking over another, in, in, in the range of fl- uh, flexibility of ways of looking. Let me read you one uh, passage from Harlem, because he says something that struck me as very interesting when I read it, with regard to... Uh, to free will and this whole question um, and its ontology. Um, So he writes, Freedom 
So he's talking about free will. Freedom is the rising of initiative above the blind happenings of the world. Right? So a human being can take an initiative. They're not just determined by the kind of random or, or purposeless movement of atoms or uh, wider social forces. Freedom is the rising of initiative above the blind happenings of the world. As such, this is a value. It lifts a human being out of the connections of nature in which he is rooted. It allows him to tear himself away, to rise into the second realm. Uh, it means the second realm ontologically. Lack of freedom is total determination from outside, the serfdom of a human being under the universal course of events. And this is the bit I found interesting. So, the profound struggle of human thought to attain a metaphysical proof of freedom of the will is a witness to its worth. In other words, there's uh, so much intellectual uh, energy has been expended uh, over history trying to prove um, that free human beings have free will. None have succeeded so far, but but how how much one has uh, humanity has tried, and that effort, um, he says, is a witness to its worth. However desperate the problem may look, the death, uh, the, the problem of trying to prove uh, f- uh, freedom of will exists. However violently all psychological theories deny it, and he's probably thinking particularly of Freud as he was writing uh, around that time. Man cannot and dare not permit himself to be robbed of it. He struggles with all his might to retain his belief in it. He has even a deep consciousness that he is free. So we feel somehow that we are free. He feels that even if he be not free, he ought to be. So he feels that even if he be not free, he ought to be. For he ought to be a moral being, a person. So for Hartman, personhood and moral being, they go together. Without moral being, we're not really persons. The will to be unfree, or even to renounce without a struggle the consciousness of freedom, would be a renunciation of his selfhood. So again, there is perhaps the impossibility of of a proof of of that kind of metaphysical idea, that kind of anthropological idea that we have free will. But there's something in the fact of our uh, humanity's keep struggle and striving to try and prove it, our our wanting to retain that sense and that notion of free will. That itself tells us something. So again, we talk about what's uh, an orientation towards truth and reality and proof about truth and reality and orientations that have more to do with soul-making and what the soul needs. Of course, they overlap. But extending that a little bit, could we not say, could uh, we say the same things uh, with respect to ideational forms, these ideas, for example, independently existing moral values. There has been, I think, uh, a failure to, to furnish proof, proofs of that the, uh, uh, moral values exist independently, that they're not just culturally contingent, etc. So far, there's been a failure philosophically throughout uh, history of humanity but the failure doesn't prove that they're, they don't exist it just says well so far we haven't found them again uh, we could uh, adopt a position of um, the viability of different uh, logoi, different ideas and notions, different conceptual frameworks about ontology and, and we can enter into um, different conception because f- f- Conceptions, and for example, a conception of um, uh, moral values as existing uh, uh, independently in this realm of uh, ideas, 
sphere of ideal existence. And uh, we can also even entertain the idea of a moral absolute, which I'll come to later. Some kind of synthesis of all moral values. I'll come back to that later. Um, And so we can enter that um, uh, and the perceptions that follow that come out of such a conception. And we can do that, as I said, flexibly, temporarily, lightly, experimentally. All that is available to us, I think, as human beings, as uh, thinking beings, as meditators, as soul makers. One of the things um, Hartman ponders, and it's kind of partly a legacy from... uh, the history of philosophy. Um, so he ponders, like all philosophers, moral philosophers do, um, the nature of the good, or the nature of goodness. And that, that phrase, the good, I think I mentioned it earlier, is a sort of a part of the heritage of, uh, from Plato, and I don't know, perhaps before even, the good. And, and surveying uh, different moral philosophies over the course of history, he says oftentimes what what uh, different m- systems of morality do is they take one value, uh, whatever it is, and depend on the system, and they say that is the, the highest good, that's the fundamental good, and then they try to derive other, other values um, from that or place them in relation to that. Um, so... He writes, uh, all recognized moral systems speak of the good as of something known. But by it, they always mean only one certain special value, which they hold to be the only one and the highest. And according as they regard pleasure, happiness, collective unity, justice, love, and so on, to be the good, the various types of morality distinguished. Even this diversity itself shows that in reality none of these values is the good. Now, there was an historically uh, there was another solution to to this, which uh, came from Plato, uh, which is the idea of the idea of the good. So, in the realm, in the sphere of ideal existence, there's a sort of absolute synthesis of all the values, and that is the good. And uh, and so he writes about this now. But if, like Plato, one sets over against such limitations of content, some, in other words, some specific um, uh, views about this or that value being the good, uh, one pla- sets over against that an idea of the good and places it above the virtues, even then one doesn't get a definition of its content. One still don't know what exactly is that, the good. It sounds so abstract. The idea remains empty. Um, he mentions also Leibniz and a concept of perfection. And uh, he says that comes perhaps a little nearer to this this goal of what we're kind of trying to get a sense of the good. Again, remember we talked about paramis, and one of the translations of paramis, uh, the, the Pali word, is, is perfection. Uh, and I pointed out, well, that would be a problem, uh, because in a way these virtues and values are not perfectible uh, in, in instance and in physical actuality and manifestation. But the idea of a perfection that's out of reach uh, to manifestation, that can never itself be completely manifest um, may work as a translation of parami and he says has something to do with what Leibniz is talking about Um, so there is historically I think starting with Plato this idea of the good so over and above any virtues there's the good which isn't a virtue itself it's this kind of mysterious absolute synthesis of all virtue, uh, that kind of is the origin or the pinnacle, uh, and it kind of exists at different level. Um, Hartman poo-poos any kind of uh, uh, belief that we can um, 
kind of think our way to some premature synthesis of what that might be, what such an absolute might be, might be, um, through dialectical, philosophical reasoning or whatever. He so says that's that's a kind of pipe dream. Whether or not there might be a sense of that in a more meditative consciousness is a different, to me, a different question. At any rate, Hartman defines uh, goodness and the good in, uh, in, in a different way, which I found quite interesting. He writes, in all morally positive contact, conduct, excuse me, in all morally positive conduct, there is found a trend not only towards values, but towards what is always the higher value. I'll read that again. In all morally positive conduct, there is found a trend not only towards values, so obviously morally positive conduct has a trend towards values, but but towards what is always the higher value. So that to him is the good. It's situational. There's a, there's a choice between different values and what constitutes goodness um, or constitutes an instantiation of goodness is the, the choice and the preference and the alignment with, based on sensitivity to, what's the higher value. So to choose um, something, for example, to choose in favor of comfort rather than uh, my kindness to another, or convenience or pleasure rather than some kind of altruistic expression, or to choose my security at a certain level, whether it's financial or some kind of existential security, over, for example, truthfulness or justice. These would be examples of choosing what's lower, comfort, convenience, pleasure, certain level of security over what's higher, uh, or more noble, we might say, that wouldn't constitute goodness. But if I choose the altruistic, if I choose the higher, the more noble, if I choose justice, uh, or truthfulness over my comfort, my convenience, my pleasure, my security, then uh, I'm choosing the higher value. Right? There's a trend towards the higher value, and that is goodness. So the good is that higher value in any situation and goodness itself is my capacity to feel that and to orient towards that and to choose that. So sometimes that kind of um, those kind of choices are very simple, very obvious, it's, it's clear in a certain situation what the different relative heights are and there's nothing except um, our own uh, fears and self-contraction, etc., that's preventing um, a, a manifestation of goodness, preventing this orientation, sensibility to orientation, uh, to and choice of what's a higher value. But actually, in life, our free will meets and has to negotiate, has to choose between um, various kinds of value conflicts. So we come across situations that are complex, um, either in the structure of a situation, or uh, actually there's something even deeper, um, there's conflicts between different values themselves. So we gave some examples of um, different situations uh, where the, 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 the setup of the situation uh, means that I have to choose between an allegiance to this value over an allegiance to that value. And I might, might feel torn, and I have to, and part of it's accepting uh, the guilt that comes with choosing, uh, choosing one and neglecting to choose, neglecting to support and give life to the other value. And some of those are really simple and kind of everyday, everyday encountered situations that we uh, come across and give some examples before. But others are... Um, really quite profound and difficult. So I was thinking, for instance, of Nelson Mandela. And in a way, taking the risks that he did for the sake of justice. Risking uh, his life, certainly, 
I think the sense was it was probable that he would lose his life or certainly a long, long time in prison and risking that and his obligation to his family, his moral obligation to be there for his family, for his wife and his children. That's a moral value as a father, as a husband, etc., if the situation, uh, so that value in conflict or, or in an antagonistic and oppositional relationship with the claims of his conscience re- regarding justice and a, a wider sphere of love to encompass the non-white South Africans, not just his family. Now, if the, if the uh, situation in South Africa at that time was such that there were two democratic parties vying for office for a period of time and one could simply stand in the sense of uh, allegiance to justice, racial justice or whatever, ethnic justice, um, uh, social justice, simply by walking to the polling station and casting your ballot and one had a sense of, yeah, I can do that, and the success of that party that isn't trying to institutionalize racism is kind of very possible. That's a very different situation, and and the situation then would not end up presenting an opposition, a choice between the the virtues and the values of um, being a father, being there for my children as they grow up, supporting them, helping their lively, uh, supporting them with the, the livelihood that they earn, etc. With love, with contact. Wouldn't have to choose between that, those ver- that set of virtues and values and the, the wider set demanded by my conscience uh, with regard to the wider social justice. So there was something very, very difficult pressing, uh, and that's an understatement, in the, in, in the structure of that situation. Often, to, But there are countless examples where our life just presents us with, with situations where there's something in the situation where these two values are brought together and I have to choose between them, or several values, and I have to choose between them. Um, and it's given by the situation. It's not inherently a problem in the values themselves. But as we go into this, and this is one of the things I was was trying to say, it's not often that the complexity of values is reflected upon so openly or carefully. So this is, again, one of the things that Hartman stresses, and I want to pick up on this a little bit. So there's a complexity not just from situations that we encounter in our life, but also among and between values themselves and in a value itself, they are more complex than we might at first realize. So, at some point, Hartman, in his big term on ethics, is talking about some of the classical virtues, meaning the virtues that, for example, Aristotle would, would write about and talk about. So, there's some Greek words here, you don't have to remember them, and I'm not even sure if I'm saying them right, but it doesn't matter, the, the, the point is a, is, a, is a more general one. So he writes, In juxtaposition to sophrosone stands acolesia and anesthesia. So, he's talking about the virtue of sophrosone, and he says, actually, you have to consider these other two disvalues, really, as being important constituent element somehow of this value of sophrosone. So, only in contrast to the former, to acolasia, um, only th- only in contrast to the former of these is it properly self-control. So sophrosone usually gets translated as self-control. He's saying, actually it's only in regard to acolasia, which is something like uh, being completely out of control. In contrast to the latter, to anesthesia, it Sophrosone is the fully developed capacity to react emotionally, to live in the affections. Okay, so there's something in this virtue of sophrosone that's not just self-control. It's self-control, but 
within a fully developed developed capacity to react emotionally and to live in the affections. In other words, we have to draw into its consideration of this one virtue, sofrosoni, self-control, we have to draw in another virtue, esthesia, as opposed to anesthesia. And then he talks about another one, seen against orgilates, orgilotes, again, pardon my Greek, uh, no idea how to pronounce these words, seen against orgilotes, praotes, is mildness. So he's talking about the virtue of praotes, the classical virtue of praotes, which often is translated as mildness, so mildness or gentleness. But seen against aiorgesia, it is the capacity to be righteously indignant. So this gentleness against orgilotes is, yeah, we can call it gentleness, mildness. Against aiorgesia, it is the capacity to be righteously indignant. And again, two points here. One is, what does that imply about our full ethical response to ethical situations and and also ethical situations like climate change and like species extinction. And what also does it imply, three points, what does it imply then about sometimes what we pick up from the tradition of Buddha Dharma is this kind of one-sided prioritization of gentleness or equanimity Certainly in the classical text, and to differing degrees in contemporary interpretations of it, but certainly in the classical text, there's this emphasis on equanimity, what we might call sofrosone, self-control, and equanimity, without really this supportive, counterweight, balancing emphasis on a fully developed capacity to react emotionally, to live in the affections, this, this aesthesia. But the point, more pertinently right now, is that virtues considered singly may be problematical. That we actually have to look at constellations and kind of syntheses, and perhaps virtues need counterweights. So there's a way, for example, altruism, what Hartman calls brotherly love, was a, a virtue that kind of burst into... Uh, consciousness historically with the emergence of Christianity. It's very much emphasized by Jesus in his teachings. Brotherly love, altruism. Who's near me? What do they need? Putting them before me. If a centurion asks you to, to walk with him half a mile, walk with him ten miles, I can't remember the exact quote, that sort of thing. Turning the other cheek, all these these eruption into human consciousness of this the domination, <clears throat> if you like, of this virtue of brotherly love, of altruism to those around one. They said that can be almost tyrannical and way out of balance if, if it doesn't have a counterweight. So there's a counterweight in just a sort of healthy egoism, a healthy self-sense. Or something like loyalty. Loyal to, I don't know what, to my community, to my teacher, to my country, beyond considerations of my loyalty to, say, justice or whatever. That would be deeply problematic. Or again, a loyalty to truthfulness where it's not really sensitive to other values and their demand for allegiance, that consideration. So there's a kind of tyranny, the potential tyranny of some values. They can tend to, or the human consciousness, or the soul in its fervor, in its love, in its, in its particular direction of soul-making at any time, can set up one value and neglect others, and um, set up one value uh, as the dominant or the, the main thrust and neglect others. So this consideration led Aristotle, when he was considering the virtues, to, to actually consider actually maybe a virtue is actually a synthesis of different values rather than a single value. So going back to all those funny Greek words, that sophrosone, proper self-control, is actually a synthesis, yes, we might call 
self-control, but also synthesize with this capacity to react emotionally, fully developed capacity to react emotionally, to live in the affections. And again, prioritis is gentleness, but includes the virtue of the capacity to be righteously indignant, or mildness, but includes the capacity to be righteously indignant. So that Aristotle said, maybe, maybe a virtue is actually a synthesis, and any of these individual, uh, what seem like virtues, are actually problematic, potentially. So all this gets, well, potentially quite interesting. Again, read a passage from Hartman about all this. In this sense, it may be said that every moral value has a point in it, not indeed in itself, but for human beings, where it becomes a danger. There is a limit beyond which its dominance in consciousness ceases to be of value. Yeah. Just imagine, take any one single virtue, like I said, like altruism, like loyalty, like truthfulness, like courage, even if it's not balanced, if it has not given a counterweight, if it dominates too much the consciousness and the moral kind of sight and sensibility, there's problems and it actually stops being a value, becomes a disvalue. So as I said, he considers Aristotle and that idea that possibly a virtue is, is really a synthesis of several values. Only a sense of justice which is, which is at the same time loving. Only a brotherly love, a love of those who I encounter in my life who are immediately around me. Only a brotherly love which also considers the far distant. Only a pride which would likewise be humble could be valid as an ideal of moral conduct. So every value reaches true fulfillment only in its synthesis with others, and indeed, finally, only an idea, only in its synthesis with all. So again, there's this kind of intuitive sense that there's some possible synthesis in the ideational realm of all these virtues which seem to need each other and sometimes pull in different directions. But that intuitive sense of it is out of reach. It's elusive, the sense of that synthesis. Every single value first attains its own full character through its axiological counterweight in the synthesis. Axiological just means... Um, to do with values, actually. Every single value first attains its own full character through its counterweight in the synthesis, through its axiological counterweight in the synthesis. Even in itself, it is incomplete. It is even threatened in its valuational character without its counterweight. Whether this consists in a single specific countervalue or in a larger series of values makes no difference. The synthesis the understanding of which is under question, is like, what is this synthesis? may have any degree of complexity. So if you reflect on this, I'm just going into it very briefly, and we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit more, actually, in, in the next part, but if you reflect on this, actually, it's it really becomes quite interesting. We can have, when we hear this kind of thing, we can have all kinds of responses in our soul. One of the responses is, almost like not much of a response. It's like, yeah, well, everyone knows that. Yeah, well, you know, moderation in all things, eh? And there's a kind of flaccidity of the mind, of the heart, of the soul in relation to this complexity and also problem or problematic in relation to values. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. You can hear the lack of vigor, the lack of vitality, the lack of attunement and readiness and poise and energization and wrestling with this problematic. But that's one response. Too much of anything is not a good thing. But it just becomes a kind of truism. And really all it's doing is not disturbing us. All we're doing is adopting a posture or a kind of non-posture of flaccidity, of non-vigor, of non-vitality, non-keenness in our moral sensibility, so as to remain undisturbed, so as to remain a little bit asleep. The soul not on fire, not uh, churning with the difficulties of the, and the challenges of the soul-making 
process of the eros, of the breaking of vessels, of the questioning, etc. But that would be one response. Maybe, maybe I don't know. It's the it's sort of mo- most people's response. I'm not sure. Another response to all that and this complexity there and this sort of pulling in different directions of different values would be the kind of postmodern insistence on and relishing of our finitude, our fragmentation, stressing the futility of trying to understand values or trying to propose any kind of higher anchoring of the moral values and of our ethical sense. Ah, see? But again, the question I would have, or one question I would have, if, if that's the kind of outlook with regard to this particular problem, is why? Why? Why are you relishing that picture of our fragmentation our existential fragmentation, our impossibility, our finitude, our, the futility of nobility. Why do you emphasize that? What's going on there psychologically? Or another possible uh, reaction or stance in relation to this problematic is with some even dimly intuited sense of a beyond of values. The beyond of the realm of ideas, of the sphere of ideal existence. Impossible as it is to instantiate, as we said with the mathematical analogies, exactly, fully, completely, just as images are impossible to fully, completely instantiate, but also impossible as it might be to um, come up with a kind of logically coherent, discursive, rational definition of what that synthesis in the beyond might be. So yes, our finitude, yes, our fragmentation, but there can be with that finitude not a kind of futility and or flaccidity, not this kind of hanging on to a certain limitation and blocking of our opening in nobility. But a finitude that kind of gazes also to the horizon, looking at the horizon, almost groping, feeling what might be beyond that horizon, over the horizon. And there are other possible reactions as well. Let's pause there for now before I go into some more about the complexities and antinomies, oppositions, contradictions between values. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.